our demographics destiny. We talk the retail economy, various generations in the workplace, and retail facility management. Welcome to episode two of The Retail Grind. And we're here with this episode two of season two of the retail grind. Uh, Garrick, welcome back to the retail grind. How how you been? How's everything going? Oh, it's good. It's been really really cool the last couple of months. I, I you know I'm working with uh, with the folks at Galelli Real Estate who are old friends of mine going back twenty years, and uh, it's you know there's something that's got to be said about uh, when you get into a family business where you're part of that family. You know, it, it's it's a really nice, comfortable setup, and uh, and you know, just every day is a pleasure. You get to go and hang out with your friends all day. Good stuff. And I see you're back on the speaking circuit, on the road, literally. And so we'll keep an eye out for I, that. I am, yeah, no, I, it, it just kind of coincides with with our guest, who uh, is is really a mentor of mine, John Burns. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Burns of John Burns Consulting really puts demographic tracking at the center of their work. And they work a lot with real estate, with residential. I think the accounts for a lot of their clients, they do some commercial work as well. But, you know, John is one of these guys that if you haven't read it, I, I recommend this for everybody. And it's not just some sort of eggheady uh, economist or <laughs> business analyst book. It's called Big Shifts Ahead. And it really gets down to some really cool things that, uh, you know, demographics is a slow moving train and, and usually you can see what's coming down the pike. Uh, and, and he really puts together this great basic set of rules for figuring out demographic predictions that at the end of it, what you're trying to do, at least if you're in retail is you're trying to figure out who your consumer's going to be, how much money they're going to have, what are they going to purchase? When are they going to purchase? Where are they going to purchase? Where are they going to live, spend? Um, you know, all of those things. But there's a whole lot of stuff you can see this coming long down the runway. And, and you know, Burns has this great four, five, six rule for demographic predictions that there's four big influencers that impact all of us. And that would be government, economy, technology, and societal shifts. And then we have what we all go through that's unique to us uh, as far as the main stages of life, you know, childhood, early career, family formation, late career, retirement. And one of the funny things, Bill, is, you know, a lot of people, especially Gen X and boomers, we've, we've fallen into calling millennials or anyone young millennials, when in fact, that was a very specific group and they're not that young anymore. Um, so I actually went out to the Chicago area and, uh, the, the funny thing is really great folks at Centennial, which, uh, is very active in basically reinventing malls that had been somewhat challenged and creating mixed use neighborhood retail entertainment environments, environments around them. And they just happened to be, uh, doing a project for a mall that I used to go to when I was 11 years old <laughs> oh, wow. and oh, wow. ended up speaking uh, just down the road and really kind of covering my take on the topics. And, and John's going to get into his, but mine, mine really is the Gen Z consumer and what to expect going forward. So it's, it's been nice to get back out on the road. Um, and, you know, especially, um, I finally feel coming into this year that we're starting to feel normal again and not just whatever the new normal was. Well, in this great timing, I think I saw on the business news today that some of the big prognosticators are actually lowering their chance of, of a recession, if I saw that. And at the end of this, after we talk to you and talk to John about demographics and Gen Z, love to hear your take on what's going on with the economy. But then before you dive in, you know, iPhone's a, a beautiful thing. You had talked about that the different generations of life. I don't know if you've heard the song Birth, School, Work, Death by the Godfathers, but you need to get that. That's uh, <laughs> 50s 
fit. I remember that song. Yeah. No, it's, 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 you know, the, here's, here's the thing. For example, I'll give you a really great example that everybody was saying back in 2011 or so, which is that, oh, millennials are radically different, that this is going to be a, a renter group, right? They mm-hmm. don't like ownership which was somewhat ludicrous because what they were really looking at is an age group that was in early career stages that, by the way, had four times the levels of student debt of any other generation, uh, both because they were the most educated demographic we've ever seen and because the price of higher education has skyrocketed uh, in, in the last 35 years. But the reality is, is just as of about two months ago, the majority of millennials now own homes. Hmm. And to me, that's one of the things when you're looking at demographic predictions is don't confuse people in their main stages of life for the choices they make then as being their permanent choices. But I do believe that there are things that starkly change demographics uh, and the outcomes based upon our, our life experiences. And to me, you know, those four big influencers, government, economy, technology, social shifts. Um, one of the things that, that I find most interesting is, you know, putting together the existing polling that's out there, plus, uh, you know, my own little efforts at informal polling. It's not a big surprise. Like Morning Consult, which is a really good polling and organization. Usually their polls have at least 2,000 or more respondents, which which is critical that the, the deeper, the more accurate they go. Probably not a surprise. 75% of Gen Z interviewed say the pandemic was the event that's had the most impact on their worldview. And that's something that I think is is really worthy, worthy of keeping in mind. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting when you look at generationally what uh, greatest concerns are across generations. You do see some uh, some similarities in the millennial age demographic and Gen Z. But Gen Z uh, is quite different as far as their level of activism uh, and their concerns for the future. Really, to some degrees, I think, their their negativism uh, negativism that uh you know they're they're very much realists and, and you know maybe i should clarify what i mean when i'm saying gen z these these are people that based on the definitions i use would be between the ages of 13 and 27 okay. millennials would be 28 to 43 gen x 44 to 58 and then you have the boomers above that um but there are some startling differences and i think it's a reflection of the different times they've lived in. Plus, all you have to do is look at the basic core demographics. This is the this is the most diverse generation in our country's history so far. Um, but if you looked at, for example, the racial demographics of boomers, right now it's seventy two percent white, eleven percent Hispanic, eleven percent black, five percent Asian, one percent other. Gen Z, 49% white, 26% Hispanic, black, 14%, Asian, 6%, and other 5%. That alone is going to create some major shifts in society, Mm -hmm. right? And from a consumer point of view, you know, trying to put that together, what what does all of this mean? It's been really kind of interesting. Uh, You know, there are a lot of good, deep data sources on, on this generation. Uh, and, and they almost all say the same thing that you, you, you see the word authenticity come up nonstop. Uh, McKinsey did a giant survey that 92% of Gen Z said authenticity was the most important value to them. And what's that mean in a retail setting, right? You know, that's a, that's a little bit harder to put, uh, your fingers on, but as you get into some of the, the deeper dives that uh, different groups have done, you know, one of the things that comes back to that is support of small businesses, willingness to try new brands, uh, 
definitely on the food front. This is a foodie generation. Um, literally, uh, and this this kind of blew me away is that if you look at Gen Z uh, disposable income, that twenty one percent of it goes to restaurants, more than to groceries, which is nineteen percent more than to apparel, 15%, more than activities and uh, entertainment, 12%, electronics, beauty care, et cetera. It's, it's generational, really likes to eat out, and they really like to try new things. But so that's, that's really kind of the gist of where I went with my research. Of course, there's, there's this giant um, paradox with this generation and that comes down to social media use and, frankly, dependence. Mm-hmm. Um, and on that, some of the statistics are, are kind of mind-blowing. Um, 75% of Gen Z, uh, you know, trust social media creators more than traditional advertising as far as helping them find the brands they want to buy. Uh, and that goes across the board from consumer packaged goods to electronics, to fashion, homewares, et cetera. Um, and again, when you go deeper into what is it about social media creators that, that they think the best attri- attributes are, authentic opinions regarding style, authentic opinions regarding product quality, authentic opinions regarding fits or problems with a good. So they really have this distrust of corporations, except if they feel that they're socially responsible for them or that, again, authentic, they walk the walk. And I think this is all really kind of critical to, to keep in mind. But on the social media side, some of it's kind of disturbing, you know, which is um, Harmony Healthcare, which is a mental health care group, did an in-depth survey of over 1,100 Gen Z and Basically, you know, it's not a surprise. 95% of teens have a smartphone. Just, you know, that it was only 70% going back to 2015. On average, Gen Z starts using social media around the age of 12. 18% report using social media before the age of 10. Now, this translates into a whole bunch of things. If you ask Gen Z where they typically spend the most time with their friends online or in online gaming come back at the highest levels. And when you reduce it to tell me a place where you like to hang out, unlike our generations, which mall always ranks up there, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it gets down to Starbucks, you know, it gets down to, this is a generation that's been somewhat cheated out of a third place which I think is, to me, that's a big, it's a big problem, but it's also a big opportunity for those of us in retail and especially, I think, uh, in the shopping center business is luring them back to third places because all of, the, all of the data on this relationship that Gen Z has with social media also suggests it's love-hate. Uh, you know, sharing, <laughs> sharing is scaring. Uh, if you look at polls that have been done, like Intuit did, did a giant one of, uh, I think it was 3,500 or 4,000 Gen Z and, and all age group consumers. Not surprisingly, social media, 32% of Gen Z as opposed to 14% of the regular population compare themselves extensively to the people they see on social media. Mm-hmm. Not surprising because it's young people. But 67% of Gen Z feel less prosperous as opposed to 58% of the regular population. And 70% of Gen Z feel their lives are not as good compared to 50%. And basically, this is despite the fact that they know there's a fake element of social media. Harris Poll did something in February with a couple of thousand. And basically, 64% of Gen Z said, personally feel fake while using social media. 70% said that they know the world or the content they see doesn't necessarily reflect the world as it really is. And overwhelmingly, 66% of, of Gen Z adults said, 
I spend too much time on social media and I'd like to get away from social media. And that's really critical because we haven't even gotten into the longer term problems, which already I think society has become aware of increasingly in the last six months. You know, there's something going on when the Surgeon General, who did this in April, releases an 86 page report on the epidemic of isolation and loneliness in, in our society. And where it's really playing out is that Gen Z group. If you line up, for example, focal points of socialization, which uh, there was a great scientific journal, the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, that came out with an in-depth survey a couple years ago where they asked 8th, 10th, and 12th graders, you know, how much time do you spend with your friends every day in person? And not surprisingly, the amount that people have spent with their friends has dropped in half since 2010. Not surprisingly, since 2010, teen loneliness rates have skyrocketed. Typically, teens, you know, it's easy to forget how tough the teen years are. Usually they rate higher on normal depression tests. Usually it's about one in four report suffering from depression. It's 40%. And maybe the worst thing of all is that since 2010, teen suicides have skyrocketed. The overall suicide rate for people under the age of 17 has increased 57%. For boys and young men, it's, it's increased 44.9%. But for girls and young women, it's increased by 125.5%. Wow. What happened in 2010? And this, this isn't putting the finger, pointing any one way, because I think it's all about social media, but that's when Instagram came online. Yep. So... All of those things are deeply challenging. The paradox for, for retailers, and I also put this on landlords, if you're really smart, is to, you've got to connect with this generation through social media. And part of it, though, is, is finding a way to bring them into your spaces and giving them a third space. Um, you know, social media as outreach, I think you're going to see a lot of advertising campaigns where it's going to be... Things like disconnect, get connected, you know, but it's, it's going to be comparing the, the whole experience of connecting via online virtual relationships is clearly turned out to be a sad excuse, sad replacement for in-person human connection. And, and so that's what I think is most amazing about this age group. Um, John's going to have a whole bunch of really cool things that he's going to be sharing really uh, a lot more on some of the other business perspectives, but, but, you know, it's a fascinating age group and they are going to be our largest consumer group in about 13 years. Uh, but I think something that's more important for people to realize is that we're now at almost 55% of the United States is millennial Gen Z or Gen Alpha, basically 44 years or younger. Hmm. So we're going to continue to skew younger because Gen X is not that large of a generation. And sadly, the boomers are starting to decrease in their population just because they're aged, they've aged out and you're starting to see we're losing some folks, right? So it's really critical to pay attention to these groups as they come into our economy the changes are very subtle at first, but inevitably every generational group comes into their own and they are deeply unique based upon their life experiences, the technologies. I mean, just think about it, Bill. Gen Z does not remember a time before smartphones and social media. Yep. Okay, that's, that's kind of a huge thing, uh, especially when I think that my mom, who's still around, thank God, you know, she was born into a time where they didn't have TVs yet, <laughs> at least the average household. So technology really influences us. Great stuff. And Garrick, uh, you presented a, a similar keynote to our national conference on this and that that concept of a third place 
is is fascinating and and certainly with a group like Connects FM where we want to talk about the bricks and mortar, the in-person experience. It sounds like there's a real opportunity there. That third place is not going to be online shopping <laughs> to go from your Instagram to something else and continue. That's not the third place you're talking about. No, no. In fact, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been advising on, you know, my giving versions of this based upon, you know, client needs that I've been doing is, is the fact that I would argue that, especially the landlords, if you have a mall or a lifestyle center, although I think this kind of goes beyond just those retail outlets, but it's not enough to have a social media officer. I think you really actually have a have to have a social connections officer. Hmm. You know, one one thing that I, you know, I've been studying what different malls and shopping centers are doing, and one one mall that really stuck out in Florida, the Oviedo Mall. They have these groups. Uh, they have they have a group for ages thirteen to seventeen. It's called the Mall Rat Club. It's monthly events, prizes, discounts. But these these clubs that they do to bring kids in, it's as much connecting them with each other as connecting them with their venue. And I think that's that's really where the opportunity is: is programming your space. You know, it's almost like you got to be Julie from the Love Boat. You know, and I hate to date myself with that reference. You just right? did. Yes, she did. But I, 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 I got the reference. Did. Yeah. But, you know, you need to have social directors that aren't just about the social media aspect. That's important. That's how you reach folks, especially in the younger gen- generations. But I do think that there's real, real starving for in-person connection among this, this age group, more so than I think people realize. And, uh, you know, that is an opportunity, not just on the business side, but I happen to think it's an opportunity to do a lot of immense public good for those of us in retail and, and really retail properties as well. You know, this is, this is a group that has not had the opportunity to hang out and socialize in person. And there are some real detrimental things that have happened because of that. Good stuff. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And and as Garrick alluded to, we have a guest, John Burns, one of the premier, if not the premier demographer in the United States. And he's definitely going to expand upon some of the uh, the issues and, and uh, dynamics of Gen Z and other generations as we have more generations in the workplace than in our entire history. We're going to be joined by John Burns in just a minute. Stay tuned. We have an incredible treat today. Um, you know, Bill, you know, I've been speaking at some Connects uh, FM uh, events recently, uh, you know, not just about the economy, but one of my special uh, areas of interest is generational change and definitely something huge. If you're involved really in any business, even though it tends to be a slow moving train, I'm always astounded by how many people get hit by that train and are completely surprised when it happens. <laughs> we have today a person who I think is the leading and best demographer in the U.S., especially when it comes to applying it to uh, you know, generational shifts that impact business uh, and certainly real estate, which, which is how I got to know John Burns. John, welcome to the Retail Grind. Happy to be here, Garrick. John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your firm and what you do before we kind of jump into talking about uh, about Gen Z and uh, how they may or may not be radically different than millennials who uh, have really dominated our talk about generations for the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, well, I started the business 22 years ago because I saw the commercial real estate industry doing such great research um, and having staffs, but residential having essentially none. So I saw an opportunity to take the uh, research to the residential. So that's really more of our focus. But you have to understand the consumer. You have to know where growth is going. We picked up quite a few retail clients along the way because we know where growth is going. Our, our home builder clients are, are building it. Um, and so we're just the outsourced research department. I've got about 130 people. About half of our folks 
publish research every month and the other half do specific consulting assignments uh, focused on land, land specific deals. Very cool. Well, let, why don't we just go straight to the heart of the matter? Um, you know, one of the things that still surprises me is I'll be at industry events and, uh, you know, people who really know real estate well, really know retail well, we'll, we'll start talking about the young consumer and they still throw around that M word, millennial. Uh, when they're talking about people that are in their early 20s. Um, John, why don't you kind of define for us what we've all kind of agreed upon uh, arbitrarily, <laughs> what our definition of this generation is going to be? Um, let me spin it a little bit differently because it, it'll, it'll help everybody if they just do it this way. So as you know, in the book that we published in 2016, it was the same question. It was millennial this, boomer that. It was like Mark Zuckerberg, who was born in 1984, and my daughter, who was born in 2000, were the same, you know, type of consumer. And I, they're a little bit different. <laughs> um, so we broke the generations down into year born and then got them by decade born. So um, I think some of these things, as you pointed out, the definitions are not clear. So everybody throws out different numbers because some people start in 97, some people start in 2000, some people end in 2010, some start in, end in 2013. So I just like, let's keep it simple. Let's just go by decade born. And um, when you do that, you can compare 10 year periods to 10 year periods. I'm not going to argue with you whether or not I'm a boomer. I know I was born in 1963, which is right on the cusp. Right. Um, it just makes the analysis, which is what we're good at, so much easier. Um, and so just to answer your question, uh, those born in the 2000s, there were 40 million people in America born in the 2000s. That was 1 million more born than born in the 1990s and 2 million more born than in the 2010s. So total apples and apples numbers there. Uh, those born in the 2000s, which is the heart of the uh, Gen Z, if you will. Um, there's more of them and a million more. So, so basically, as much as we talked about, um, you know, using, using the, the real estate definitions that kind of got roped in, like, for example, that... Uh, that millennials were the biggest generation since the boomers. You know, I'm, 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 I'm like, you know, Gen X, if you go by those definitions, born in 68. We were kind of the forgotten generation. We didn't seem to do much except watch Seinfeld and Friends and be snarky. Um, but, but when we're talking about this is a much larger generation, even though, you know, I think when we – look at birth rates and, and so forth, it seems like there's been a decline. This larger generation, what other big changes are we talking about? Just say comparing them to millennials before them, much less, you know, what would be, you know, Gen X or boomers. Yeah. Well, when, when we wrote the book, I'll go back to your definition thing. Some, some of those Gen X is smaller things is because they're you're using 15 years and they're comparing it to 17 year periods, which of course it's smaller. Right, right. <laughs> um, but um, we gave each, I mean, we did 7,000 hours of research on this book. So we really got under the hood and got into the census data and tore it apart. And we know what's good and what's not good in the census data, probably too much. Um, but what we learned by doing that is that um, usually something happened pretty significantly in your teens or early 20s that kind of shaped your values and how you change society going forward. And so I'll back up a, a little bit because I think this helps. So those born in the 1930s, the Warren Buffett era, were born into the Great Depression. They are savers. I mean, they didn't, they didn't borrow a lot of money. They saved, saved, saved for a rainy day. My dad was one of those. The 1940s, which was uh, the, the heart of the baby boom got started, right? Those are the achievers. Because their definition of success was not saving, it was spending and having a big, big, bigger house than everybody else and double income households. And um, the 1950s, that's the, the Bill Gates generation and Steve Jobs uh, graduated right into uh, right into the evolution of the PC. And it really uh, impacted them. And we called them the innovators. And they shifted society to be more innovative. I'm bringing the whole history. Mm -hmm. but. The 60s, which is my generation, was the uh, equalers because the big thing there was t Title IX where uh, women and men started to have more equality. Uh, and that shifted the workforce and, and retail in particular because now retail uh, women were shopping for business clothes, right? Not shopping for, for kids stuff, uh, more of them. The 1970s, um, that was a baby bust. Um, 
we call them the balancers. They shifted the generation away from their parents who were achievers to be, I don't want to be an achiever like my parents because I watched them get divorced. They had a huge surge in divorces. My definition of success is to have some balance in life. So that, that, that's when that shift started. And again, all these things happened when they were in their, their teens, right? That's when the divorces tended to happen. Uh, 1980s were the, the shares, that's Zuckerberg. The entire sharing economy was invented by them. They graduated right into the great financial crisis. Worst time ever. They said, well, we're going to figure out how to share things because it's smarter. And if I told you growing up that somebody someday would say, you know, let's stay in other people's houses like Airbnb or let's get in a stranger's car like Uber, you would have said that is the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard of, John. But they that they invented that because of out of necessity, really financial necessity. And they had a lot of student debt, too. The 1990s, we call them the connectors because they stayed so connected to their friends and actually their helicopter parents with their smartphones. That was the, the big shift for them. What we're interestingly seeing right now is their parents are still helicoptering them, but also helping them buy homes and helping them get a nicer apartment because they've got all that money. And then the 2000s at the time, we weren't quite sure because we wrote the book in 2016, is right, as they were going through it. But we said they're the globals because they're because of what's going on, on on their phones. They're very, very aware of what's going on globally with the environment and everything along those lines. So th that was our nickname for them at the time. Now, I guess my daughter is the oldest there. So she's uh, 23 this year. Um, I mean, it is, it is I, I don't know if I have quite at all figured out yet, Garrick, but um, I'm happy to answer any questions and how they, they've shipped things. One of the things I do think about, though, is because clearly they were in that age when we got the pandemic. So how is the pandemic going to reshape the way they um, live? That That's a great question. And I think I was actually lucky enough to be very close to my three of my grandparents who lived into their 90s. They went through the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919 at the same age. And interestingly, I never heard them mention it once. Um, so I, I, maybe World War One obviously was a bigger impact on them than the Spanish flu. But I, I wonder if this whole work from home, go to school with a mask on, is going to somehow shape this uh, generation um, I think it's going to based on historical trends. Well, you know, one of the things that sticks out to me, um, it, this, you know, the, the, the people in their early 20s right now, they've never known an age without a smartphone. Right. Right. So you've got you've got these couple of converging things. You've got they've, they've never known an age without a smartphone, whereas, you know, 10 years earlier, you, you'd still find folks that you know, didn't grow up on a smartphone. They just didn't know an age before the personal computer. You know, as you keep going back, you you get tech dinosaurs like me and Bill, right? Uh, but the impact of that, how how do you see that probably shaping them generationally? I think there's a massive shift going on, and um, a lot of my clients don't like to hear it. So, so... As you said, they've always talked to their friends and hung out with their friends, just to put it on, online. Um, they want to work from home. And um, their bosses don't want them to. And I got to tell you, it, it is a huge shift um, that even if they're going to have to come into the office three, tail, three days a week, the retail downtown, I think, is done. I think a lot of people are really optimistic that it's going to come back. It is not. Because we didn't have smartphones. We didn't have high-speed internet in people's houses. We didn't have the ability to do these things. Um, and also, and this is big on the demographics, it does not get enough attention. There are so many people retiring. For the first year ever, Garrick, we have the same number of people graduating from college or high school as the number of people turning 65. Oh. So our labor force is going to be tight, Right. So who's going to call the shots in a tight labor force? They are. <laughs> uh, and I think the Fed is going through that right now. We're, we're recording this in May 2023, but they're raising rates like crazy, and the unemployment rate has hardly moved at all because everybody who's been laid off thus far is just finding a job like that because the demand for them is so strong. Well, that brings it up. A whole bunch of questions that we get into with the Fed, but, which, which obviously is a, if, you're, if you're fighting yesterday's battle – uh, you know, using yesterday's techniques, I mean, are we in a permanent, you know, beyond just a cyclical employment phase, but 
where structurally we're starting to look a lot more like Italy and Japan, where there are not enough young people, there's not enough workers. Uh, and, and obviously we have a very complex relationship with immigration that uh, right. to, to possibly offset those pressures. But, uh, you know, you would think that by now with uh, so many other economic indicators, you know, showing what's happened with inflation and the impact of rising interest rates, that the job market would soften, but it, it just hasn't. No, and a lot of it has to do with the demographics. I, I think this is the biggest miss. So just coincidentally, uh, the first baby boomer turned 65 in 2012, which is right at the bottom of the great financial crisis. So as we grew out of this, we just didn't have that much labor. <laughs> we, we've been adding a million people a year where we used to be adding one and a half to two. Now we're actually down to zero. The, the labor force between 20 to, uh, 20 to 64 year olds in 2021 actually shrunk because of COVID. Um, and we're hardly grown at all right now, including migration, immigration, legal and illegal. So, um, you know, I, I think the Fed's biggest issue that, that they haven't come out and said is that how do we even grow the economy 2% real GDP when we don't have the number of people working growing at 2%? In fact, it's hardly grown at all. Right, right. Now, now I am, I am curious about one thing that I keep seeing a lot of that I, I can't help but, but put two and two together, at least with my own little armchair detective approach, which is the rising depression rates of young people and young adults that, that <clears throat> seems to coincide. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, we're not just talking about the impact of COVID and what it may have had on young people. They're socially formative years and not going to school for a year or two. But the, you know, the fact that, you know, Instagram came online in about 2010. And every data point I've seen on mental health for young people seems to show that that being the start date of rising rates of depression, self-harm, suicide. Um, what, what is your take on, you know, what this all means for this current generation and, and how it's going to shape them and their behavior as consumers? I mean, it's a, it's a sad topic, but you're, you're exactly right. So, um, you know, I'll use an analogy, which is very different, but o o the rise in obesity in America was perfectly co uh, correlated with the rise of McDonald's and Coca-Cola and fast food. And the, you know, the rise of uh, mental health issues seems to be perfectly correlated with the rise of social media. So um, I don't know what that means for your clients, but, um, you know, it's, it does seem this group is a little bit more introverted maybe, which might be a reason they want to work from home um, and that but they'll be shopping from home too. So I know that retail is getting disrupted from that. And even if they're going to come into the store, they probably check the retail out on their phone before they came in. Right. Well, one of the big, big challenges we have, and one of the things that we've seen as an opportunity is this rise of experiential focused retail, just the, the experience economy as a whole. But, but the idea that, you know, you have to give people a reason to show up. Um, so suddenly, you know, pickleball places are going into all these empty uh, department stores or, or now empty bed baths and such. Um, one thing I'm very curious about, you know, you, you, you do your work that also borders up with commercial real estate and residential real estate is, you know, your takes on, um, you know, the old theory that, there, that we have three places, that the first place is where we live. The second place is where we work. Third place um, wasn't necessarily just where we shop, but uh, kind of where we commune and where we socialize. Obviously, third places have been vastly disrupted over the years uh, with this digital transformation. How do you see, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of people show up to go to places like Top yeah. Golf. The big question I have is whether or not you feel that is there an opportunity for retailers to actually create real third places, you know, the way that uh, those born in the 60s and 70s hung out at the malls? And uh, nowadays, you know, I speak to my niece and they hang out at Starbucks, which which seems a, sure. a little bit less of an experience. 
Well, what, what did you do? We hung out at 7-Eleven. Uh, so yeah, Starbucks you is know, good. Slurpees and asteroids. I mean, you know, they kept us busy for a few hours. <laughs> right. And then, and then playing video games probably right. too. So, I mean, it's, it's, I, don't, I don't think it's that different. I, I think um, maybe as a percentage, they're going to be spending less time with other people, but they're probably going to really value those interactions even more. As a, as a fun anecdote, my son's 25 and he builds escape rooms for a living. And he is just in like total hot demand. I mean, the, the escape room business is on fire right now. Talk about a great experience. You go hang out with your friends for an hour or two and then you go home, you know, and uh, super popular. Uh, I, I just find it, it, it one of those things that one of the things I worry about, it, you know, I mean, literally the, the, the Surgeon General of the United States earlier this week released an 88 page paper about what they view as one of the biggest health threats right now, which is which is youth depression, um, depression on, in general, but especially on, on the youth cohort. And what I'm very curious about when I when I look at this is, you know, is there, you know, let's just simply get worsened if people work from home. It's another way that uh, for young people in the years that they their prime socializing years that they're going to miss out. Um, and and what the the repercussions will be socially, but whether or not that's an opportunity, you know, for, for employers that are trying to bring people back, do you have to approach it the way retailers did, which is guess what? We can't be commodity anymore. We, we have to create an experience for you. Um, so I've given, I've done a lot of research on this. I've given an hour long presentation to a whole bunch of CEOs. I think, People over the age of 40 are missing it, um, just completely missing it. I mean, you led into the fact earlier that these folks grew up with smartphones. Um, as an employer, we've leaned into letting people work wherever they want, and we put different tools in place to make it work. And, and I can tell you, uh, I've had more people tell me I feel more connected to my coworkers here at our company than at our prior company when I came into the office every day. It's like you and I having a conversation right now. We, you know, we're, they can't see this, but you and I are on video. We're, we're connecting before we started. We checked in a little bit. I um, mean, we just train everybody to do that and really show, we actually have a communication certificate we put everybody through to be compassionate, candid, and clear. And we teach everybody to start every conversation with compassion. And I got to tell you, my team is killing it. And I've got the stats to back it up. I mean, we're one of the highest rated, great place to work companies, the highest rated Gallup engagement. Um, and I'm not saying this to brag. I'm saying this to think differently because they can they can really connect with people this way. I mean, you see people walking around FaceTime, right? And, and like seeing the reactions. We get everybody a, a good camera. I say, I want to see you smile. Um, you know, well, what about that chat where, you know, you walk next door and you talk to the guy? Well, we use Teams for that. And some people use Slack. Like, hey, you got a minute? Sure. Hop right on the video. Um, I mean, I, I know it. We also lean more into getting together when we can. We get together as a group several times a year when we send more people to conferences just so they can have dinner with each other. Um, I, I really believe, Garrick, that is the future. Well, I'm curious then because that, that has huge repercussions if, if you turn out to be completely yeah. right. And that, I mean, obviously, we, we're seeing the office just market completely disrupted in, in ways right. that retail didn't have because it's all happened at once, whereas we had you know, 15 years of, of growing e-commerce and there was time for savvy, well-capitalized retailers to shift. Uh, those who didn't make it either weren't savvy or most likely in most cases, they just weren't well-capitalized enough to do what they needed to do. Um, that said, you know, we saw really millennials kind of got pinned with this, but it started with, 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 you know, people born, I think, late 60s and so so forth. The, the return of cities that really started to kick off in the late 90s and, and all these young people and then empty nesters who simultaneously were saying, we want live, work, play lifestyles. And, you know, you saw you, New York in a 30-year period from its low days of the 80s to the early 2000s grow by a million people. Um, right that whole wave of urbanism, is that dead? Right. I mean, do you, do you see a hope 
that we can convert an awful lot of these empty high-rise office buildings into cool housing and that we can start landing maybe, you know, if if we're going to still stick with the general terminology, the late Gen Zs, the ones that are still in high school as they they grow up, uh, go to school, get out, and, and suddenly join the workforce. Is, is that something you see as realistic as coming back or do you think something more um, profound has happened? I, I think we need to change the conversation about cities to be the office area and the residential area. Because one of the reasons people came back to New York um, was it's a fun place to live when you're in your singles. I mean, there's a lot going on. All those experiences you're talking about, they're all over the place and you don't need a car. What was done prior to that was People were having kids and, you know, we built freeways and they moved out to the suburbs and we stopped building freeways and it just became a parking lot to get into work. So that, that was part of it is let's, let, let's live closer. In fact, we coined this term in the book called suburban, which is bringing the best of urban to the suburbs because that was a lot of high density housing we see. I think that is dead. I, I um, for the most part, we're not, not completely dead, but um, this work from home thing is actually an afford- affordability solution too. Uh, you can live further or you can move to a different metro area. But I want to go back to New York. Um, I've got more than 100 companies as clients in New York, and I go back there for a month every fall, and I'm going in two weeks for a week too. Um, I used to have meetings, six meetings a day for four weeks straight. Now they're like, no, nobody's in the office, John, but you know what? They're working from home on the west side. I mean, they're in New York because it's fun, right. <laughs> but they're not coming into the office. They don't want to come into the office for whatever reason. In fact, one of my clients jokes, like the guys who come into the office, they come in to screw around. You know, why don't you stay home and get your work done? Um, <laughs> so it's a complete reversal. And I, I know rents are down in San Francisco, but I can see some of that a little bit in San Francisco. It doesn't quite have the uh, infrastructure to move around and do fun stuff that uh, New York does. But that, that and then regarding you know converting office to residential, in, in my view, most of that is going to have to get torn down, tore down to do that, which is going to cause an awful lot of pain on a lender, and so uh, we're not going to see a lot of that anytime soon. That, that's years. Yeah. Away. Well, one thing that I that struck me, uh, I just saw this headline this week that millennials now own more homes than there are more millennial owners than renters. Which uh, a little bit late for that generational group, but I'm I'm curious about your thoughts on that and what you see playing out the the idea of the younger ones, the Gen Zs, and you know are they going to follow the same pattern as millennials with delayed, well a whole lot of different delayed things, but uh, home ownership being one of them. Um. So that we're actually writing a white paper related to that <clears throat> on the transfer of wealth to this younger generation. So um, going back a little bit, those born in the 80s really got married and started buying a home and having kids five years later than their parents did. So that, you know, that's the ultimate impulse, your impetus to settle down. So there was a five year delay there, but they also had higher incomes when they did that, too. So they were buying a slightly nicer house. A lot of them. Um this generation, what we're seeing, and, and the other shift during the pandemic was just uh, people are spending more money voluntarily, actually, uh, on housing as a greater percentage of their income, both rent and, um, well, the mortgage is down. But the point is, I, I'm not going to live in as crowded of a space or I'm going to only have one bedroom instead of two if I'm going to be working from home a couple days a week. So people have changed the value of their home. But what we're seeing, Garrick, is, um, and this is a real bifurcation in society, so this is not everybody, but the, the wealth of the boomers, particularly the last few years with the stock market ripping and then home prices ripping, um, and remember, these are the parents of the quote-unquote connectors. Uh, we want to stay connected to their kids. I want the kids to stay near me, so guess what? I'll help you with a down payment. So you know, the, the, those who don't have a parent like that, Completely opposite story. Um, but going to home ownership, every generation we've looked at, um, starting with those born in the 1930s, gets to 80% ownership, home ownership by the age of 60. It just kind of varies over time. I think this group will get there too. Um, 
and but it's going to be a lot with the help of their parents and the ability to locate in a more affordable area if you're lucky enough to be a knowledge worker. And there's more knowledge workers of them of it than of any prior generation. Which again is kind of a distressing message for city planners and <laughs> in large urban areas that have been <clears throat> hurt by uh, by the pandemic and what I think it's accelerated. Well, well but um, you know the the residential areas in those areas are great. So I, I still think there's going to be, I don't think people are going to start having kids that much younger or anything like that. There's, there's still going to be a huge population of their people in their twenties who want to live in these areas, maybe just not work. So I, I think we'll see some transition more towards residential, but not, not this year. So as we start to wrap this up, I wanted, I wanted to ask you one question. What do you think looking forward, what do you think is the one trend that you, you think is really going to emerge with, with those that are in their late teens and their early twenties right now that maybe people just haven't even thought through or thought about that you think could be a game changer. Um, I mean, the one we, we've already talked about it. It's, it's the ability to work from anywhere right? Um, and shop from anywhere and hang out with my friends from anywhere. <laughs> um, technology has changed that. I mean, we've got high-speed Wi-Fi in pretty much every corner of every metro area at this point now. We didn't have that before. That's going to impact them dramatically. Great. I mean, look at us. We're all in three different locations. We couldn't have done this 20 years ago with this high quality, not even close. I don't think we could have done it 10. <laughs> so, yeah, right, well, right. listen, John, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, folks, John Burns. Awesome demographer, great consultant, incredible book, Big Shifts Ahead, that that I still recommend to everyone. Uh, and, and some of the basics of demography as a science, it, it's just a critical read. And we're back. Garrick, what would you think? Uh, fascinating stuff. From both Garrick Brown, but certainly John Burns as well, our guest. Uh, yeah, John. John's just always amazing, and and I'm just waiting for his next book to come out. Um, you know, it's 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 like I said before, it's one of those business books that you you could really give to anybody, and it's just really well written and fascinating, and just you just feel like your IQ went up 10, 10 points from from reading it. So. But fantastic that we were able to land them. We've got we've got a really good lineup of people that we're scheduling down the road. But uh, I thought I'd give a very quick economic update. Um, yeah, what's going on out there, Garrick? Explain it to us. <laughs> well, you know, we keep seeing all these conflicting signals, right? Yeah. And it, as I had explained before, that we're in this weird through the looking glass period where. Uh, every time we get great job numbers, which we did last mm -hmm. month, uh, I find myself rooting against it because I don't want the Fed to raise interest rates more. I'd like to, to give it a little bit more time. Now, here's the thing. Uh, by the time most people listen to this, this is we're recording this on uh, early in the week of June 12th. Mm -hmm. And... Um, by later in the week, there's a whole bunch of data that's going to be coming out. By the way, by the end of the week, the Fed will be meeting again. But that that said, the latest inflation numbers are going to be hitting the market. Uh, and I believe that comes out on Tuesday, June 13th. Right now, the consensus predictions, trading economics is predicting that it'll drop from 5% to 4.1%. Uh, there's another group called fact set that is saying 4.2%. I mean, either one of those is going to be really, really welcome news. Although those are still double the fed target of 2%, which, which honestly, I, I feel maybe is a little unrealistic in, in for now, I, I would like to see them be happy with getting us to 3% for now and maybe work on it gradually down the road. That said, I suspect those are going to be good numbers, but I do think that one number that means a lot to us in retail that will be coming out later this week is the retail sales performance for May. 
And those numbers come out on June 15th. You know, last month really threw economists for a loop because uh, in February and March, the year over or the month over month trend had gone negative, uh, less than 1%. It was 0.7%. But really, the last six months, the monthly number has gone down four out of six months. Now, the year over year number still stayed in the black, right? It still stayed good, but it just really a very nominal 0.4%, which obviously, if you adjust any of these for inflation, retail sales are, are not keeping pace. Here's the thing, though. Um, I think this this next report, we're going to have, to have for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, both those monthly numbers and the year-over-year numbers going into the red. And, and here's why. Last month's year-over-year number, 1.6%, was the smallest that we've recorded since going back to May of 2020. And that was when we were still recovering from the lockdown portion of the pandemic. Now, here's the thing, though. If you look at where they are, they, they, they've done much better than most economists had thought because, you know, obviously we had a 20-month retail spending party. Uh, we're literally, we had 20 straight months where retail sales year over year were never less than 8%. And in one insane month, April 2021, they were up 50% over the year before. Of course, that's because it was over the worst period of the pandemic. And we had all this money pumping into the economy. Now, that money pumping into the economy boosted savings rates substantially. It also saw a lot of people paying down their credit cards this is why I'm not so optimistic is if you look what's happened with our savings rates and our credit card debt over the last few months, they've really started to skyrocket out. Um, the um, credit card debt has surged 13.2% over the last 12 months. That's $1.4 trillion. Okay. And if you compare it to all types of debt, you know, your mortgage debt, your car payment debt, that's only increased 3.2%. All right. This is all about credit cards, which means how we've been keeping these retail spending numbers afloat. We've been putting on our MasterCard, Visa, Amex, Discover, whatever. There's one more problem to that, which is that now that money, that debt costs us a lot more. Um, you know, according to the Federal Reserve, the average interest rate uh, for American credit cards the beginning of the pandemic was 14.7%, and it basically stayed there until the last 18 months. Well, the Fed only does this, this number quarterly. So their last number was 20.9% in February. But Forbes does a weekly update on their own set of data, which now has the average credit card interest rate in the U.S. at 24.6%. So that 1.3 the 1.4 trillion we just added to our credit cards, we're going to have to pay substantially more to pay down. And if you look at where the savings rate is, prior to the pandemic, for 50 years, we'd averaged as a nation an 8% savings rate. At the beginning of the pandemic, people were freaking out. There was panic savings, surged to 30%. Then suddenly all the aid came through and we saw the amount of money the Americans had in their bank spiked by $5 trillion. Well, in the last year, Americans have burned through almost a trillion of those savings. And the savings rate itself has dropped to about 4% or half the historic norm. Wow. None of these bode well for retail sales in the near term. If there is a bright side, like you mentioned, more and more economists are thinking that the banking crisis that unfolded in March and some of these other indicators will keep the Fed from jacking the rates up one more time and just give the economy time to let this filter through because the inflation rate is falling. If that occurs... I'm with the camp that says we might escape with the soft landing if they don't raise rates one more time. However, 
if they raise the rates one more time, I think it just diminishes that possibility. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the retail sales numbers being in the negative can turn out to be a good thing if it kind of slows the brakes on this, this process that, uh, those were bound to come down sooner or later. Um, and I think they're going to finally come down this, this month. Who knows? By the time most people read the, or listen to this bill, uh, it'll be real time uh, as to whether I'm right or wrong or know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, you, uh, and I see what you did there. You teed up episode three, which will be coming in the not too distant future, especially once we get all these data points later this week. Uh, Garrick, thanks again for your insights on Gen Z. Our thanks to our guest, John Burns, for our episode two uh, outside guest. Demographics are fascinating especially with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, so many different generations all stewed together in one workplace, throw in a pandemic, throw in inflation, throw in what else? I mean, what else could you throw in? What's going on here, uh, Garrick? Thanks again. We'll talk to you um, on episode three in a very distant future. For our audience out there, this is The Retail Grind. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Have a good one. <laughs>